Hello, welcome to the Fat Lip, the podcast for fat people about fat people. I'm your fat host, Ash. And on today's episode, I wanted to talk about, well, I have been thinking about the movie The Favorite and an article that a friend shared with me about the real Queen Anne. So if you've seen The Favorite, it's about um, Queen Anne and the relationship that she had with two of the women in her court. And the story of the favorite is kind of kind of revolves around these two women and how they use their relationship with the queen to accomplish things that they want done. Um, and I liked the movie when I watched it and uh, it never occurred to me the things that I read in this article because I didn't really know the history or about the real Queen Anne. Um, so when my friend brought this article to my attention, I found it really fascinating and really relevant to the fat lip. So what I'm going to do today actually is read you this piece. It was published in the New Statesman um, in January 2019. Um, and it's by a journalist named Anna Leskowitz. So I'm going to link to the article and also to uh, Anne Leskowitz's social media so that you can follow her. And the reason I'm going to just read this is because um, this journalist has like dug up things that I think are super relevant to what we talk about on the fat lip and in, in ways that I never would be able to. Um, So I just wanted to read through it with you and then I'll kind of talk about some of the things that I found most interesting and fascinating. And also it sort of is um, influencing, reading this article is sort of influencing where I want to go with the fat lip in the next several episodes or the next several months. So we'll get to that all at the end. But first I want to read you this article. Um, And if you haven't seen The Favorite, uh, I don't think it's that important that you see it. The, the movie isn't really about the queen specifically. Um, so, but we'll, I'll, the article gets to that. Right now, though, in the interest of not interrupting the article once I get started, I need to talk about our sponsor, Big Fig. So as you guys know, I love my Big Fig. I've had it for two years and it is holding up extremely, extremely well. It doesn't sag. It doesn't flex under me. That frame is so sturdy. Like I haven't feared one second in the last two years that it was going to fall apart, which is something I cannot say about any other bed that I've slept on. Maybe since I was a child. And it's the holidays. You're probably spending your money on other people, buying gifts. But what better gift is there for you than to start the new year with a brand new bed? Give yourself the gift of sleep. It is the best thing you could do for yourself this holiday season especially because the holidays are stressful. So go to bigfigmattress.com, use the code FATLIP at checkout for $100 off of your purchase and to let them know that I sent you. And treat yourself, give yourself a gift this season with Big Fig. 
I do want to warn before we start, though, that um, the things said about Queen Anne, who was a fat person, in this article, um, not by the journalists, but by people throughout history and other people that have written about her, are incredibly uh, demeaning towards fat people. And they use the words overweight and obese and many, many much more um, horrible descriptors about uh, Queen Anne's fatness. So if that is something that is going to bother you, then probably pass this one by. So, okay. So the article is entitled Ugly, Gouty, Fat, The Problem of Queen Anne's Body. Um, and it says, from the memoirs of the 1700s to the favorite, depictions of Queen Anne have always fixated on her body. Okay, so I'm just going to get right into it. Queen Anne had to be carried to her coronation ceremony on a specially designed sedan chair. At just 37, she was too unwell and overweight to walk the traditional processional route from Westminster Hall to Westminster Abbey, about 400 feet by herself. When she died in 1714, aged 49, she was placed in a coffin described by one onlooker as so wide it was almost square and bigger than that of her prince, her husband, who was also known to be a fat, bulky man. It was taken to Westminster Abbey by a chariot with particularly large, strong wheels, drawn by eight horses draped in purple, where it was then carried inside by no less than 14 men. Some even claim the coffin didn't fit inside the vault, and that other royal coffins had to be moved to accommodate it. Queen Anne is one of Britain's lesser-known monarchs. Many only know the briefest details of her life. Many more are surprised to hear she existed at all. She is studied, discussed, and depicted significantly less than any other British queen. But stories of her reign habitually start and end the same way, bookended with these two images. If you only know one thing about Queen Anne, it's probably that she was fat. Yorgos Lanthimos's absurd, caustic, irresistible snapshot of Queen Anne's court, the favorite, gleefully dispenses with history. Such grand scenes, usually staples of period dramas, are thankfully absent. But her body remains the central focal point of the narrative, a site of contradiction, where divine rights and mortal wrongs coexist. The film opens with Olivia Coleman's petulant, manip- manipulative, pathetic Anne being ceremonially, ceremonially disrobed in her chambers after a speech, her long train and heavy crown silently lifted from her as she agonizes over whether or not she lisped. Soon we're watching raw beef being slapped on her bare, gout-ridden, le- gout-ridden leg as she howls in agony. The tension of the film revolves around who attends to the queen's body, who does her makeup, who dances with her, who wheels her chair, who heals her wounds, who dresses her, who feeds her, who fucks her. The razor-tongued Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough, and the socially climbing lady's maid Abigail Masham, played by Rachel Weiss and Emma Stone, uh, respectively, are locked in a battle over who has the privilege of rubbing the queen's leg. The real Queen Anne was ill, overweight, and living in a state of constant grief. She experienced 17 pregnancies in her lifetime, resulting in multiple miscarriages, six stillborn infants, two babies who died within hours of birth, two two daughters, Mary and Anne Sophia, who died as infants, and a son, William, Duke of Gloucester, who died when he was 11 years old. Her contemporaries were were not moved to kindness by the heartbreaker she experienced but made cutting remarks on her body regardless. After their spectacular falling out, 
Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough, wrote a damning account of their friendship that paints a lasting portrait of Anne as miserable, dull, childish, and exceedingly gross and corpulent. One lord complained he was sorry to see she grows fatter. The contemporary writer and Whig Roger Coke described her as monstrously fat, with a face that wore a tincture of sourness and was rubicund and bloated, blaming her weight and overeat on overeating and an addiction to hot chocolate. The Whig politician John Clerk, after twice encountering the Queen during an acute attack of painful gout, wrote in horror of Anne's frightful, red and spotted face, negligent dress, nasty bandages, and dirty-like rags, surmising that Anne, quote, appeared to be the most despicable mortal I had ever seen in any situation. Nature seems to be inverted, he declared, when a poor, infirm woman becomes one of the rulers of the world. Later scholars and biographers seem to share the, his revulsion, painting vivid pictures of not just Anne's fatness, but her immobility and her infertility in jarring language. A Victorian scholar of Alexander Pope introduced the queen as, quote, ugly, corpulent, gouty, sluggish, a glutton, and a tippler. In 1848, Agnes Strickland wrote, Few of those to whom the rotund form and high-colored complexion of Queen Anne are familiar can imagine her, can imagine her as a poet's love. Historian Linda Colley describes her as simply, quote, Poor, dumpy Queen Anne. Mark Kishlansky, in his 1991 Penguin History of Britain, introduces the queen as, quote, unattractive, quipping that her insipid tastes were limited gambling and dining, losing pounds at one set of tables, and gaining them at the other. Gimson's Kings and Queens describes Anne as grotesquely fat, while Anne's most re recent biographer, Anne Somerset, describes her as alarmingly so, adding that by the time Anne came to the throne, she had long lost her personal attractions, as she was corpulent, coarse-complexioned, and ungainly. In a 2001 work on royal doctors and medical treatments in court, Elizabeth Lane Fridell writes colorfully of the symptoms of Anne's gout, including, quote, monstrous swelling, grotesque postures, and flatulent contortions, as well as, as describing in a grim and emotionalist turn of phrase the Queen's, quote, tragic fecundity. The objectification of Anne's body only intensifies over time, defining her in terms of her sexual appeal whilst implicitly suggesting that a fat woman is necessarily an unattractive one even when referencing her many bereavements, until her body is emptied of personhood. In the 1950s, J.P. Kenyon wrote in a particularly charming sentence that Anne's body, never more than graceful, had been battered into shapelessness by an unrelenting series of pregnancies. His description was clearly influential. David Starkey writes in Crown and Country that Anne's handsome, womanly figure had the misfortune of rather running to seed after repeated miscarriages and stillbirths. While Anne Somerset says matter-of-factly, numerous pregnancies had obviously played a part in ruining her figure. The word battered appears again in Ophelia Field's The Favorite, Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough, which says of Anne's last living hours, her 49-year-old body, battered by 17 years of pregnancy and a lifetime of obesity, lay surrounded by few friends and no family. The satirical 1930s history book 1066 and All That takes corporal fixations to the absurd, divesting Anne's body of all humanity by insisting that she was, in fact, dead for the entirety of her reign. In the entry, Anne, a dead queen, Seller and Yateman write, besides being dead, Queen Anne was considered rather a remarkable woman, concluding that the Whigs, the most mocking of the Queen's critics, were, 
the first to realize that the queen had been dead all the time. In the favorite, Queen Anne is both undeniably furiously alive and troublingly mortal. She is unapologetically lustful, whispering fuck me to Sarah one day and using Abigail to taunt her the next, hissing, I like it when she puts her tongue inside me. We watch her howl in agony at her gout-ridden leg, grimacing and pulling at it. This fucking leg, she mutters, is like a monster attacking me. Cut it off for me, will you? We watch as her health deteriorates, her eye drooping, her mouth sloping, her left arm losing mobility, her appearance growing wilder and more disheveled. We watch in slow motion as she is dressed in hunting gear. We see her made up like a badger and utterly unkempt. She limps and lollops around her chambers in a yellow nightgown like one of her rabbits. We watch her use her own ill health as a tool of manipulation, threatening suicide and wailing, I'm tired, it hurts, everything hurts, everyone leaves me, dies. She even feigns fainting to escape a particularly challenging moment in Parliament, then dwells out for the aftermath. I looked like a fool. They were all staring, weren't they? I can tell even if I can't see, and I heard the word fat, fat and ugly. And we watch her eat. She shares cake with Abigail and her rabbits and demands hot chocolate despite Sarah's insistence that the sugar inflames her stomach to the extent that a bucket and a mop for the aftermath will be required. If drowned in a bath of hot chocolate, Anne tells us grinning, grinning, she would die happy. We watch as she inhales handful after handful of sponge cake, slathered in bright blue icing, pukes it up into a royal urn, and then, with a perfunctory wipe of her mouth, continues eating. Coleman, who gained weight for the role, triumphantly accepted a Golden Globe for her performance, saying, I ate constantly through the film, and it was brilliant. Anne's size, appetite, and infirmity become symbols of her unsatisfying and decaying relationship with the Duchess of Marlborough. I am not food, Sarah tells Anne before their estrangement. You cannot just eat and eat. Once their friendship is irrevocably destroyed, Anne says curtly, Some wounds do not close. I have many such. One just walks around with them, and sometimes one can feel them filling with blood. Field notes that historic accounts of Anne and Sarah's relationship often locate the turning point in their relationship, with an anecdote suggesting that Sarah once accidentally wore Queen Anne's gloves, but threw them off and threw them off in disgust when she realized, shouting, Have I put anything on that has touched the odious hands of that disagreeable woman? Without knowing the queen could hear her from outside the door. The connotations of the glove anecdote, Field observes, include the obvious one of the gloves coming off in the arguments between Anne and Sarah, but the story also focuses the reader's attention on Sarah's rejection of Anne's body. The favorite dispenses with this mannered portrait of female conflict for fights far more explicit, brutal, and vicious, but similarly places their disagreements in this context. Abigail unreservedly embraces the queen's body with constant flattery and physical affection, but Sarah does not. In their final confrontation, she says sarcastically, You wish me to lie to you? Oh, you look like a, an angel fell from heaven, your majesty. No, sometimes you look like a badger and you can rely on me to tell you. Clearly influenced by contemporary accounts and subsequent descriptions, Coleman's Queen Anne is by turns nauseating, irritating, charming, resilient, pathetic, monstrous, exuberant, self-pitying, oblivious, calculating, and thrillingly silly. She is given flashes of decisiveness, good sense, and, compa and compassion that prevent her from becoming a hysterical, one-dimensional cartoon. Freed from the constraints of history, this exa exaggerated portrait feels less of a reductive, mocking indictment of a complex ruler than a deliberately surreal and mischievous reverie. Anne's body is magnified, distorted, and made metaphor through a twisted lens, 
but one that feels distinct from the male gaze. Queen Anne hasn't made many appearances in popular culture. When she is seen, it's as a punchline. The favorite is the first depiction of her on screen since the 1983's Yellowbeard, where she was played for laughs in a brief turn from Peter Bull and Drag. The way her body has been analyzed, criticized, and mocked by her contemporaries and subsequent chroniclers has influenced hundreds of years of thought on her reign. Anne exemplifies Ernst Kantorowicz's concept of the king's two bodies, the problematic simultaneous existence of a monarch's tangible human body and their political, divine, stately one. Anne was the last English monarch to practice the royal touch, touching her subjects to supposedly cure their skin diseases. Field notes the 18th century correlation between the queen's body and the body politic made reactions to Anne's body particularly strong. Anne's gout was a subject of public horror, she writes, moving her opponents to use, quote, images of diseased putrefaction as a metaphor for the country's political ill health. Starkey sees Queen Anne's body as inherently undermining of her regality. Anne's reign was a paradox between public power and popularity and personal physical weakness. Still, it's remarkable that these 18th century associations persist. Field credits Sarah with molding history's image of Queen Anne with her embellished sketch of a stubborn, miserable, vapid, fat, spotty woman in her memoir. It was Sarah, Field writes, after the relationship had soured, who turned Anne into the caricature of insipid heaviness that makes her appear a minor figure besides, say, Elizabeth I or Queen Victoria. Robert Bocholz, in a comprehensive, definitive analysis of how contemporary and subsequent depictions of Queen Anne's body relate to how individuals, individuals rate her as a ruler, writes that, quote, what strikes the historian of Anne's body is how, for all periods since her death, there seems to be a direct correlation in both popular and scholarly accounts between how an author portrays the queen's physical size and shape, from pleasantly maternal to grossly obese, and his or her estimation of Anne's political abilities and, che- and achievements as sovereign. Bookholds outlines how those who fixate on her weight in a disgusted tone see her as stupid, weak-willed, and insignificant, while those who seek to rescue her from unfairly dismissive portraits tend to describe her as comely, well-proportioned, or even majestic. It's unusual for someone to describe the queen as fat, without judgment or disgust, and also as competent. After she died, the results of Queen Anne's autopsy were recorded in a document titled Upon the Observations of the Opening of the Queen's Body, which brings to mind a perversely satisfying image of the queen's corpse as a cabinet. The observations made on her body are uncharacteristically few. Upon opening the body of her late majesty, of blessed memory, we found a small umbilical hernia, her doctors remark, before going on to describe her too smooth stomach, her tender and flaccid liver, and a small ulcer on her left leg. We can give no further account, they conclude, being forbid making any other inspection than what was absolutely necessary. History has been less restrained, scrutinized, criticized, reanimated. More than 300 years after her death, the relentless dissection of Queen Anne's body is, it seems, still not complete. So that was the article. Again, it was in the New Statesman, um, January 18th, 2019. The title was Ugly, Gouty, Fat, The Problem of Queen Anne's Body, and it was written by Anna Leskowitz. Um, So I found this article fascinating, mostly because... I think there's this mythology that we've been sold about fatness um, and maybe not in the fat activism community or fat liberation community. I think maybe we've moved past that, but 
in the general public, there's this mythology that, um, you know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, fat was celebrated and fat people were seen as rich and it was attractive to be fat. And now in modern times, you know, um, we glorify skinniness and it's so different now. Um, but articles like this prove that historically fat phobia has always existed and that even a monarch, you know, believed to be ordained by God to rule over uh, and the English empire, even she was subject to incredible fat phobia. And, um, in a lot, in a lot of these cases that seems to have been assigned, you know, in more contemporary times, more recent years, but even the accounts of, uh, her coffin when she died and how she had to be carried, um, there's so much fat phobia even in that. And so I think, yeah, she died in 1714. And even then, onlookers were saying, were commenting on how large the coffin was and how fat she must have been. And um, so I think that really shows that fat phobia is not a new concept. And the Duchess of Marlborough, in her own words, like she was very, very close to the queen, one of the queen's most trusted. Uh, friends and advisors even she expresses her disgust of the queen's body and I just find that so interesting and so telling about the pervasiveness of fat phobia and it's also so interesting how all of her physical ailments that were probably caused by you know 17 pregnancies and a lifetime of, of ill health that she was blamed for that. And that people believed that it was because she drank too much hot chocolate. It's just so parallel to how we view fat people now that no matter what has happened to you, no matter what underlying condition you have, it must be your fault because you eat too much or you drink too much hot chocolate. You know, it's just fascinating. And also like, so, so disheartening, you know, because contemporary fat people, we know that this stuff exists and we're working really hard to reverse it. But knowing that we are buried under this hundreds and hundreds of years, at least of history of fat phobia, even towards the most respected members of society makes it feel that much tougher, you know? Um, but I think we are you know, making strides. So, but so all of this, this whole exploration of this article and which I think was so incredibly well-researched and really found things that like, I would not be able to find and made associations that I probably wouldn't have made, um, which I am, I admire so much. Um, and reading this has made me think about two major things. First of all, there's this, um, there's this narrative that we hear from fat phobes now that there were no fat people through history. It's all created by, you know, access to convenience foods and things like that. And, uh, that we're, we've all just become lazy through the advent of, uh, technology that doesn't require us to be, you know, 
to work as hard. So that strikes me because obviously there were very fat people in history. And also it makes me wonder about the other historical figures that we know that were fat and the stories we've been told about them. And it makes me want to sort of explore those stories a little bit more. People like Mama Cass, which is clearly like a way more contemporary uh, fat person than Queen Anne, but the mythology of Mama Cass and the fact that people still believe that she died eating a sandwich, which is not true for the record, not true. But fat phobia is so pervasive that these stories persist and that people believe these things. So what I want to do with the podcast um, in the next few months, maybe longer, is uh, take some episodes to sort of explore these fat people throughout history and things that are hidden from us because history is viewed through such a fat phobic lens. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, so what I'm going to ask of you is if you think of a fat person in history, a notoriously fat person in history, and something you've been told about them that relates to their fatness, or if you know something in particular about a historical fat person uh, that you would like to share that I could explore further, I would love to hear that. So email me at ashthefatlip.com. And I'm going to work on that. And these episodes are going to be a lot of work. So I'm not saying that we're going to get two of these a month for the next several months. But it is something that I want to work towards, work on. So that's what we can look forward to. And if you are a historian or an expert on any uh, historical figure that we know is fat, I would love to hear from you. Because I am not a historian. I am... Not even, I'm not even good at history. Um, But I think this is important stuff that we need to know to advance fat liberation. Like we need to talk about historical fat figures and um, how their fatness influenced what we know about them now. So that's where I'm going with this. And I hope that you join me. And I hope that if you have... uh, stories that you know about or things that you would like me to explore that you reach out and, and tell me ash at Okay. So that's all I have for today. So I would like to thank Starcrusher for the music you heard on today's episode and the music you're hearing right now. Go to cstarcrusher.bandcamp.com to hear more. Thank you also to Big Fig, our sponsor for the show. Go to bigfigmattress.com and use the code fatlip at checkout for $100 off of your purchase and to let them know that I sent you. Don't forget to follow on social media. I am most active at, on Instagram, instagram.com slash fatlippodcast. Oh, and I forgot to thank the Patreon patrons. Thank you to our Patreon patrons. Our patron of the day is my friend Ross, who is the, also the one who brought this article about Queen Anne to my attention. Thank you, Ross. And thank you for... Um, the discussion that followed and helping me like shape the idea for this new series of episodes on historical fat people. Um, and I think that's all I have for today. So 
thank you so much for listening. I hope you had an excellent uh, holiday with your family or with your friends. And I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.